0: besides all the swag, you actually, like, save lives when you give blood, too. So that's (laughs) pretty cool, too. Um, My name is uh, Kane, and I'm on the leadership team here at Crossbridge. Glad you guys are all here today. Thanks for making Crossbridge a part of your morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll hop into the message for today. So, God, we thank you um, just for a moment to um, just spend in your word today uh, as we pause and just uh, thank you for this week. Um, we just praise you for all that you're doing in this church and in this community. and Through these people, God, um, may your spirit continue to guide us and lead us and counsel us in the ways um, to honor you. It's your son's we pray. Amen. So today we're actually finishing up um, with one of the four C's at Crossbridge, which are kind of like our, that's our core values. We're going to be finishing up Connect. Uh, in our uh, Summer of Discipleship series, this is basically connecting with others where truth meets life. Um, and the facet that we're going to lean into today uh, is the idea of hospitality, but specifically hospitality as we see it emulated in Scripture. Now, it, in Scripture, the idea, the word of hospitality, is a little bit unusual for a couple of reasons. One is because it doesn't appear very often, um, the word hospitality, although you see it expressed and emulated a ton. Um, It just is shown without being given a title. Um, In fact, the word for hospitality doesn't even appear in the English version of the Old Testament. Uh, It only appears in the New Testament. But hospitality also is linguistically a little bit unusual because in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, uh, the word is a combination of the word friend and stranger. It's philozino, which is literally translated friend-stranger. So when it's saying, like, be hospitable towards others, it means be friend, stranger to others. Um, So it's a little bit of a weird word. But so you can while you can't look at, like, the passages that say hospitality, you can see where it's expressed within Scripture. And depending on where you look, it kind of shows up in different ways. Um, When it's lived out, it can be seen as generosity towards outsiders, meaning those who aren't in your friend or family group. It can mean welcoming guests into your home. Uh, It can also be used uh, specifically to describe charity towards other Christians, Um, not necessarily those within your church or your community, but just in the the body of Christ as a whole. Uh, But simply defined, I think the best way for us to think of hospitality as we read through these passages today is understanding it as caring for all people through service and generosity. Caring for all people through service and generosity. Now how that service and generosity manifests itself can take hundreds if not thousands of ways and in fact I think a lot of us might even disagree to some degree on what hospitality lived out looks like in in large part um, in our day to day lives. But I think the starting point we kind of go with is caring for all people through service and generosity. Regardless of how we've seen hospitality practiced within the church, or maybe not practiced within the church, uh, hospitality is a long held Judeo Christian belief. God breathed the idea of hospitality into the earliest covenants and laws of his people. It's in the Old Testament laws, in the Levitical law, it's repeatedly uh, expressed as a godly character trait in the prophets. It's emulated by men and women of the Old and New Testament. It's commanded in the letters to the early church in the New Testament. Caring for guests, strangers, and the other, as Wes talked about last week, is in the very DNA of who God has called us to be as his people. Now, I'm also confident that hospitality is a personality trait of God. And so when we extend hospitality towards others, we are emulating God to a varying degree. Now, to show you this and to show you how long it's kind of been a celebrated part of our heritage. We're going to start by going almost all the way back to the very beginning of our faith, to the patriarch of our faith. We're going to read a story about the patriarch Abraham. And so if you want to, you can flip in your Bibles to Genesis 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. The words will also be on the screen to follow along as well. And this is what Genesis 18, 1 through 8 says. Uh, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So the narrator's kind of setting the scene today. The Lord is going to appear to Abraham. And right now we find Abraham uh, at the front of his tent, escaping the heat of the day, resting his eyes and his body from the sun's relentlessness. I'm sure we can all kind of understand what that's like after this week. Um, you kind of know, like as soon as you're in the sun for like just a little bit of time, you're like, I'm ready to not be here anymore. And so Abraham's kind of out, the sun is baking, he's like resting. Uh, and in verse 2 says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by, standing nearby. So he says, looked up. So one of two things was happening. Either Abraham was nodding off or he was doing one of these things, which I do when I'm hunting. Sometimes I like sit like, th- I do like one of these things. Abraham was probably doing something like that. And so he looks up and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's people here uh, out of kind of nowhere. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So he hurries to meet them because he didn't want to be seen as if he was rude, like he wasn't receiving them as his guests. I I, I like to imagine that if you're Abraham in this time or really anyone in this time, you're in an extremely low populated area. You don't get very many visitors passing by. And so not not only, I think to some degree, you probably get excited to see people because it's like you, your wife, your servants and some cattle and some, and that's about it for who knows how long. Um, And you want to treat them as lovingly as possible. So they want to come back and feel received and they feel welcomed and loved by you. But I think there's also a degree to which you do that because you don't want them to possibly come back and mistreat you um, for feeling like you like did something wrong to them. Now, based on this verse and the following verses, if you were to keep reading Abraham has no idea that these two, that these three men are actually God in some form and two angels. Um, he doesn't know. They've concealed their identity somehow. And we know based on the following story um, that these are, in fact, two angels and God to some degree. But Abraham thinks these are just average men. Uh, he thinks these are regular dudes. And as his potential guests, he demonstrates humility and lower not only like mentally but physically lowers himself down before them to show them respect and honor. He says, "If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by." Lord here is a general term for reverence or respect. He's not saying lord as a deified term. This isn't the word for God. It's a common term applied to like kings and governors, even husbands are addressed as lord in scripture at times. The gist of this statement is he doesn't want these men to leave. He wants to have the chance to show them what he feels is proper hospitality. In essence, he's saying, sorry I was nodding off and didn't receive you in the way that I wanted to. I'm humbling myself down before you in hopes that I can now serve you in my home and you'll you'll allow me to do that, is basically the equivalent of what's happening here. He says, let a little water be brought and that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant? Very well, they answered, do as you say. So he gives these three men the game plan. If you guys stay, you can wash your feet, you can rest in the shade, I'll bring you some stuff to eat, and you can drink and be restored, and then you're free to go on your way and do whatever you want. Like This isn't some like multi-level marketing scheme where I'm gonna ask you to stay, and there's gonna be a timeshare presentation afterwards. This is like, come, hang out, eat some food, rest, and then you guys can go on your way. And I want you to notice, when he says, I'm going to give you something to eat, it's literally translated as like a morsel of bread. He's saying, if you stay, I'll give you like a little thing to eat, just a little something to eat. And this is important because what happens after this, we're going to read one of the finest examples of under-promising and over-delivering you're ever going to see. Because he's about to give them a feast, not just like a little morsel of bread and some feet and some water to wash their feet. Uh, now maybe he underpromises and overdelivers because I, I know a lot like you. Like if you were to like go over to somebody's house and they're like, "Oh, I'll cook like a ten-course meal for you." It was like a, just a random Thursday. You'd be like, "Please don't do that. That's like way too much and unnecessary, right?" So maybe he underpromises and overdelivers because he doesn't want them to feel like they're putting Abraham out, or maybe um, he wants to surprise them with hospitality. Um, But either way, this isn't just like a little bit of bread and some water to wash their feet. Continues on, Abraham hurries into the tent and tells his wife, Sarah, quick, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Now, a seah of flour is about two gallons of flour. And he says, get three of those bad boys. So he says, get six gallons of flour and bake bread with it. Now, we live in a pretty like consumeristic society, but I don't think even us in our like uh, American overabundance of food have six gallons of flour on hand, except for maybe Wes. He might be the only one because he bakes regularly. And this is like 30 loaves worth of bread. This is a lot of flour. Um, and not only is it flour, it's, look at the words, the finest flour. This is not that multi-grain, got seeds in it nonsense. This has been sifted. It's good flour, right? And then Abraham ramps it up even more. And he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant. Not an old mangled bull. A choice tender calf. Gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. A whole calf. A bare minimum, we're talking 60 pounds. If it's like just out of the womb a couple days ago, 60 pounds of animal here. So we got 30 pounds of flour, like 30 loaves of bread, 60 pounds of meat. And then it says he then brought some curds and milk and the calf and the bread and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So if the massive quantities of bread and meat weren't enough, here come the milk and the cheese to go with it. This is like a dreamlike meal, right? This is the best of the best. This is meat. Cheese and bread, all of the things that I like in my meal, right? And then Abraham doesn't even eat it. He makes all of this food just for them. He's standing next to a tree while they eat. Sarah isn't eating the food because if you read verses later on, she's actually in the tent continuing to work and clean and do all the other things. Abraham is standing next to a tree, and certainly none of Abraham's servants were sitting down with these men eating as well. The hospitality that Abraham demonstrates here exists to serve no one but his guests. It was not used as a self-serving excuse to pig out like I do when I invite people over for like Super Bowl Sundays or something. This isn't like, hey, I'm going to cook a bunch of food and then it just gives me an excuse to eat a bunch of barbecue or something. This was like, this was just for his guests. It existed for them alone. Now, as far as Abraham is concerned, his warm-hearted hospitality was just the proper way to entertain visitors. But as the reader, knowing what we know, right? We read this passage and we know this is God and we know that these are angels. I think we're meant to reflect on how appropriate these offerings are, right? Because again, these are just regular dudes, say Abraham. Why does Abraham show such deference to people he doesn't know? Well, like Wes talked about last week, Abraham and Sarah recognized in their righteousness that every person, regardless of who they are, is made in God's image, thus is worthy of care. Why does Abraham offer the tender calf and the best flour? I think it's because in his righteousness he recognized it honors God to offer up our very best to people. Not just the leftovers, not just the things we have tucked away in storage, not just the canned goods, right? Not, and proverbially speaking, not literally necessarily, Right? The leftovers of our life, but to offer up our very best of our life to the people who need it or want it or in our presence. Why does Abraham prepare it in such large portions? I think it's because Abraham and Sarah had been given in abundance by God. They had been blessed. I mean, they had 30 pounds of flour just on hand and maybe more, right? They had multiple calves to choose from. Like there was a herd, right? They had been. They have been blessed with water and milk and cheese, all of the things, right? And so they go, this is an expression of our generosity, the generosity that God has showed us. This is an expression of that to you. And so we would read passages about hospitality, specifically from a godly perspective or a Christian perspective. The answers to these questions and the pursuit of those answers is really important. Okay, so now I want to parallel that story with another story of hospitality that gives us similar insights into this God-ordained hospitality. John chapter 13, super famous passage. Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. But before we begin, there's a few things I want to talk about with the writer of this passage, John. Because from a linguistic standpoint, he's kind of the oddball of the gospel writers. I think Wes has talked about this before. But John uses a lot of like quirky phrases um, in his the writing, it, the way he writes it is really weird. So much so, when I was in undergrad, I had to take a biblical Greek, like translating biblical Greek, more or less. You could pick Hebrew or Greek. I picked Greek. And then in your final project, you had to translate an entire passage of scripture um, from Eng- from the Greek to the English. And it was kind of like the whole class had to like choose. And we chose a passage from John. And the professor was like, no, you're not going to do John. Like he was like, don't do it. And we were like, but we want to do it. And he was like, you guys will be miserable for the whole semester if you do this. Uh, And he talked us out of it. But he was like, John is a nightmare to translate from the Greek to the English. Because I like to think of it like John is the artist of the group. He's the lyricist of the group, right? He's the one who's writing all the flowery songs. He's a dreamer. He's verbose for what seems like no reason. Now, I don't say these things as criticisms. Because I say it because it's important for us as we, as you read through John, if you ever read through the gospel of John, there are phrases and ideas where you kind of will read it and you'll go, I don't know what that means, I'm just going to skip over it, right? And it's important to not do that with John because a lot of times what he's communicating is really important. The, the little things really matter when you read John. Um, and it's also important to know that in Jesus's, much like other times in Jesus's ministry, He's going to do one thing, but there's emphasis in other things, right? Like Jesus loved to work in layers, right? He would say one thing and it would have like multiple meanings. Jesus is going to do one thing here and it's going to have multiple meanings. This is going to be a physical foot washing, but the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, there's theological precepts and symbolisms that are communicated. Jesus is physically washing his disciples' feet, but there are all kinds of illusions here that point to the washing of sin through the cross, and the resurrection, and these ideas of sanctification and justification, like how we're made righteous before God, what the process of becoming more like Jesus looks like. But for the sake of clarity and brevity this morning, I'm only going to focus on the physical act of the foot washing and how it connects the ideas of connecting with other people in life through hospitality. And so with that all being said, with that preamble out of the way, here's what John 13 says. It was just before the Passover meal, uh, before the Passover festival, excuse me. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I said what I said before John, because in this very first verse, we read one of those peculiar phrasings. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's like a weird way to say that. He could have, John could have phrased that a little more clearly, and it would have made a little more sense. But the significance here is that the focus of Jesus' love here, this is what we need to pay attention to. It's not the love that we see in John 3.16 that he's already written, where it's like the love of the world, right? This is a focused moment. The love that is being expressed is the love for the followers of Jesus, his disciples, right? His own, as it's called, as John says, the people who would call themselves Disciples of Jesus, the people of God. And this is really significant for us because what Jesus is about to do at the later verses we're going to read is he's going to call his disciples to something very significant, right? If everyone in the world did what Jesus is about to do and then prescribe, it would be awesome. It, the world would be a better place for it. But only one group of people are about to be put in a position of responsibility, and that's us, his followers, those who would call themselves disciples, not the entire world. This isn't an expectation that Jesus has for the entire world. It's a particular expectation that he has for his disciples, and that matters a lot, okay? It's also interesting to note, uh, again, stylistically, that John says he loved them to the end, because artistically or literally, this can mean two different things. Literally, it can mean Jesus loved them till the end of his life. Like it could mean like a moment in time, the, an end of a moment in time. Or it could mean that Jesus loved them to the fullness of love's extent. Like to the, he loved his disciples to the boundaries of love. Meaning he could not love them anymore, right? Right? Now, theologically and doctrinally, this changes nothing, but I do think it's fun to imagine like John's writing this, like chuckling to himself, like wait till they get a load of this. Like I'm going to like blow their minds with how artistic or great this is, right? Like it can mean multiple things. And so I think it's like he loved them to the end, but also to the fullness of love. Jesus could not love his disciples any more than he loved them. It was not possible. Second verse, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. John is being very particular here. He wants us to know, his readers to know, how strongly this episode attests to Jesus' love. Because in the room of the disciples who were about to have their feet washed is, is Judas, who had already set the plot in motion for Jesus to be killed. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew exactly what was about to go down. And this foot washing was part of preparing his disciples for his return back to God. Verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Okay, so this is the picture. The disciples are reclining probably on thin mats around a low table. Each is probably like leaning on an arm um, with their feet extended away from the table so they could have access to the food, right? They're doing like this thing. This is how they would eat, right? Or it would be left arm probably so that you could eat with your right arm because you don't do anything with your left except for sanitary things. So eating, leaning on their left, eating with their right, their feet are outwards away from the table, and then before the food begins, Jesus gets up and adopts the posture of a servant. Takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist. This is the posture. This is the appearance of a servant or a slave. This would have been, in a, this would have been in something that would instantly you see somebody walking around town looking like that, you would have known, that's a slave. That's a servant, okay? This is the posture. This is the appearance that he takes. He begins then to wash his disciples' feet and in doing so, once again, demonstrates, backs up his claim. I am among you as one who serves. I have come to serve, not to be served. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard this story before, and I'm sure many of you know, this is shocking behavior by Jesus, like absurdly unacceptable, like going against all cultural norms behavior. I cannot emphasize the the social shock of what's happening for the disciples here. To give you an an idea of how insane this is, according to scholars, there's literally not one example in either Jewish or Greco-Roman literature or history, which is a lot of antiquity, by the way, like a lot of books fall into the Jewish or Greco-Roman history, right? There's not one example in those records of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It doesn't exist. Because it never happened, except for this one time where Jesus does it. And not only do they recognize Jesus to be a socially superior person, right? He's their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's the literal son of God. They believed him to be, they knew him to be the literal son of God. And he's adopting this posture as a slave or servant of theirs in order to do this. The literal son of God was washing their feet. Now, we're going to skip ahead to verse 12 because the next verses are the meaty theological concepts. It says in verse 12, When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. I like to imagine the fact that Jesus asked this question and then immediately goes into a response is because everyone is staring dumbfounded at what just happened and nobody answers. Like Jesus asked the question and everyone's just doing one of these things, like like just staring blankly. And so he goes, okay, well, let me just tell you what I did then, since nobody's speaking. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The disciples didn't answer because they had no reason to believe that this is what he was doing, right? It didn't make sense to them. But Jesus suggests both an example and a pattern to his disciples. Do as I have done for you. This is the significant call that I mentioned. This is for us, specifically, as his followers of Jesus, those whom he loved, those who were in the room. This is for his disciples, everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. D.A. Carson says about these verses, one of the ways human pride manifests itself in a stratified society, which is a society based on hierarchy, is in refusing to take the lower role. But now that Jesus, their Lord and their teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, which was an unthinkable act, there is every reason why they should also wash one another's feet and no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. Jesus continues on, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him, Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. The point of this outward act becomes clear here. As followers of Jesus in this world, those who are his servants sent by him into this world, we have no ability nor right as his followers to neglect the call to serve others in the way he has already called called us to serve. The danger, though, as D.A. Carson also says about this, is there's a form of religious piety that utters a hearty amen to the most stringent demands of discipleship, but then rarely does anything about them. And in this teaching, Jesus condemns those who would hear his words and fail to keep them. We have no right to not do the things that Jesus has already demonstrated he is willing to do. So what do these two stories teach us, right? I think independently they can teach us A lot, but I want to talk about the overlap and the connection that we see in God-breathed, God-demonstrated hospitality here. Firstly, Christian hospitality often means elevating others to be your equal or above yourself. Abraham and uh, Sarah put themselves out by serving these people. They didn't view themselves as better than these people um, by these men who appeared, and instead they took the posture of a servant to meet their needs, to provide water for their feet to be washed, to cook for them. Jesus, as the literal son of God, was elevating those who followed him into a position of equality or even above him by washing their feet in what was often looked at as a demeaning task. I think this tells us that anytime you elevate someone above yourself and demonstrate hospitality, you are, in a small but significant way, reflecting the gospel to them in the very same way Jesus lowered himself on our behalf. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus lowered himself on our behalf, elevating us to a place in which we can not only receive forgiveness, but we can be reconciled back to the Father, have relationship with God once again, even though we are in a lower posture or lower position than he is. Second, Christian hospitality often means serving others who don't necessarily deserve it. The men that Abraham met and served, as far as he knew, were not regal. He owed them nothing. They hadn't done something for him, and then he was. his response was like, well, let me pay you back with this expression of hospitality. It wasn't like an exchange or anything. This is where people, he had no idea who they were. They deserved nothing, and yet Abraham and Sarah gave them the best anyways. Obviously, the disciples deserved nothing from Jesus, the literal son of God. They did not deserve to have their feet lovingly washed by the king of kings in this manner, but Jesus did it anyways. Likewise, anytime you demonstrate hospitality towards other people, even when they don't necessarily deserve it, you are in a small but significant way reflecting the gospel to them in the same way that God served us who didn't deserve it by sending his son to die for us so that we might live in the most hospitable community possible, that is, community with God. Ephesians 2 tells us, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. We deserved wrath. Because of our unrighteousness, but God gave us life and gave it to us undeservingly. This is hospitality being extended to us by the very creator of the universe. Third, Christian hospitality often means serving people who can't do for themselves. The men Abraham met, as far as he knew, did not have the means necessary to provide food and water and rest and restoration for themselves, and yet Sarah and Abraham worked tirelessly to ensure that they provided for their guests. It was just in their nature to care for these men that came to visit them. Now, Jesus, in washing his disciples' feet, didn't necessarily do something they couldn't have done. They could have hunched over. They could have washed their feet physically, but they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have done it. It would have been absurd for them um, to wash their feet like before they eat their food, right? If I told you to do that now, even with antibacterial soap, you guys probably wouldn't do it, right? If it was like before a meal and I was like, go take your shoes off and your socks off and wash your feet and then eat your food. You'd be like, I'm gonna wash my feet and then I'm gonna wash my hands again and then I'm gonna eat, right? Like they didn't have any way to do that. They wouldn't have done it. It would have been like a social like faux pas. They just wouldn't have done it. It would have been gross. They walk around in sand and mud and animal excrement and who knows what. Like there weren't dumps and it was not sanitary anywhere, right? They just wouldn't have done it, right? Romans 5 says... And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were helpless, powerless, unable to do for ourselves because of sin, and ultimately because of our sinful nature, unwilling to do for ourselves, wouldn't have done for ourselves, God demonstrates who he is and how much he loves us by doing something we could not do. And that leads us to the big idea that I want you to walk away with today. Christian hospitality, when practiced, Demonstrates the gospel in a powerful way, pointing others toward the hospitality of God the Father. When you live out hospitality, you are not in full, in a small portion, reenacting the hospitality that God has demonstrated towards us. You are breathing out a kingdom proclamation, a gospel proclamation when you are a hospitable person. And that's where I want us to land for today. Hospitality cries out the kingdom of God to a world who desperately needs to hear its proclamation. I think many of us in here are probably good at hospitality. Right? Like if we invite somebody over, we know how to take care of them. But if I had to guess, my guess is I don't think most of us has fully grasped The power that hospitality holds as a means of gospel proclamation. Because when you make food, when you make drink, when you invite others over, when you serve others, when you work for others, when you clean for others, when you drive others' places, whatever it is, right? Expressions of things that they can't do for themselves, expressions of generosity, whatever it is, you are in fact reenacting. In small portion, the gospel, demonstrating God's generosity towards others who don't deserve it or who can't do for themselves or elevating people to a position higher than you or equal to you. In a society, like our society is not a stratified, there's not like a hierarchical system to, to a large extent, but like anytime you say to somebody, whether through words or actions, you are equal to or better than me through your works, it speaks volumes. And so the constant conversation in those things should be, how is God being reflected in the work that I'm performing right now? How is God being reflected in the service that I'm performing right now? Because in that conversation that you're having, probably in your head, right? In that conversation, there is power for people to know God. To be clear, I want to say our day-to-day lives isn't necessarily dependent on us serving at a soup kitchen or homeless shelter and expressing hospitality, hospitality that way, although that is a proper expression of it, okay? I think hospitality can be expressed even in our day-to-day lives by inviting people into our homes, into our circles, our spheres of influence who wouldn't otherwise be there, right? That coworker who lives in Tallahassee, has no family in Tallahassee, They can't provide their own family, but you can invite them into yours. That single mom struggling to make ends meet, doesn't really have a whole lot of time for herself, you can offer to watch her kids and express hospitality and generosity in that way. That older person who you work with who has no business being on a ladder, but you hear them say something about wanting to decorate for Christmas, that's an opportunity for you to step into that space. Sticking around a little bit longer, Right After work or after a meeting or whatever to figure out, try to establish some ways you can express hospitality, not just bolting for the door immediately once you're done with a meeting or something. Those are ways where you can begin to decipher, discern. What are ways where I can express hospitality, a kingdom proclaiming hospitality toward other people? You know, one of the, my favorite expressions of this for us, from me and my family, for CCF, the ministry that I run at FSU, is um, we provide a meal for students once a week. And we feed typically between 30 and 50 students every week. And I cannot tell you the number of times where a student has said, like, my fridge is empty, I literally haven't eaten all day, this is the only food I've eaten today. Now, a lot of times that's due to their own neglect, right, because they're just cramming in the library or something. But there's a huge percentage of our population at Florida State that lives below the poverty line. So much so that there's a student-only food pantry at Florida State because students, a ton of students, thousands of students, experience food insecurity. And when a student tells me, like, thank you so much, this is literally all I've eaten, most of the time it's like, oh, I bet For the reality is is they they literally don't have food right now. I love giving out leftovers, like, It's the best. There's one student in particular um, who has had a really hard life. And um, she has made some choices that do not honor God in her life. And for a period of time, she, she made a choice and felt so guilty about it that she basically stopped coming around for a period of time she felt like she was undeserving unworthy of the care and the love that we showed as a community and this year she started coming back and it has been such a blessing to be able to feed her and she's one of those students who i know lives below the poverty line she does not come from a rich family um, that expression of hospitality if she never hears me say right like explain the gospel in its fullness I know she's receiving the truth of the gospel through me serving her in that way. Now, you guys don't run campus ministries at FSU. A lot of you work in state jobs or things like that, so there's limited opportunities to do some of that stuff. But I would encourage you, begin seeking out ways to to answer the question like, how can I show hospitality towards others? Hospitality is a powerful expression of our faith and the gospel. It's not just a matter of being a good person. They are demonstrating to others the best person in Jesus Christ. They are in a small but significant way a a method of demonstrating the power of things that we believe God has already demonstrated towards us. God connects with humanity like no one else can because he created us. And when we emulate God, we can connect with people in a way that we otherwise can't by behaving like the very God who created them. And when we practice hospitality and thus emulate God, we can connect with people where truth meets life in a way that isn't possible elsewhere. The gospel is, in large part, the very story of God in his hospitality creating a hospitable existence for a sinful humanity. There are few greater ways to connect with people, I believe, where truth meets life than by serving them through acts of hospitality that point them to the kingdom of God, a kingdom that has both accomplished its work in the cross and in the empty tomb, but is also a kingdom that is still at work right now in this very moment until the end of time, until Jesus comes back. That kingdom is at work right now trying to make heaven be brought down here to earth trying to make this world a better place so people can see God for who he is in all of his glory. So as we go from here this week, let us be people who connect where truth meets life through the practice and the discipline of hospitality. So here's some questions for you to discuss, to think about this week. Do you think that you are gifted in demonstrating hospitality towards others and do you regularly practice hospitality towards others and then the probably the more important question why or why not who are people in your life right now that you can do a better job of demonstrating hospitality toward and what can you be more hospitable toward them then lastly in what ways do you think being a hospitable person shows others the nature of who God is so let me pray for us to be hospitable people demonstrating God's hospitality for others God, we thank you for um, this moment and this time to read your word, to grasp a little bit better the ideas of hospitality and what that looks like for us uh, as a discipline, as a practice that you have called us to. God, maybe be more like Abraham and more like Sarah and more like Jesus in the ways that we care for others. God, we recognize um, that you are a hospitable God. You have created a way um, for, to care for us in ways that we could not care for ourselves you have by sending your son um, shown us that you are willing to elevate us to a position and a posture that we do not deserve God um, God we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you're continuing to do in our life how you're continuing every single day to demonstrate hospitality towards us um, by the renewal of your grace and your mercy every single day the continual washing of our sins that we're guilty of every single day, Father. We thank you and we praise you for that. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.